everyone. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is Light It Up. In this part, we continue to shine a light on Extreme Lighthouses, a collection of episodes on the first, the last, the most isolated, and more. In today's episode, we cover Tasmanian Lighthouses with Ron Felberg, including Matt Syker, the last man and the most southern lighthouse in Australia. They pronounce Matt Syker. How would you have pronounced that? Matsuka. Matsuka. I think it's Dutch. So we could mm. have, uh, yeah, I think Matsika Island was named after a, a Dutchman. And so I suspect, or a Dutch person. So I suspect, mm-hmm. however, we've translated into the uh, Aussie twang. Uh, it's probably butchered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. If, we, if, if, if all the Australians agree that we're saying Matsika, then I'm okay with it. Yeah. Got to make it our own, you know? 100%. So, Max, like with our Western Australian cousins, sometimes we do also forget about the Tasmanians over Bass Strait. They are the smallest of us all. I don't think it's fair to say they're the smallest of us all. I think that regular height, I just think the island is small. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to say, Mandy, that I am a unapologetic Tasmania stan. I love that little island. Um, I think like plenty of, um, of you know, left-leaning um, people of my age, I've definitely fantasised about moving down there and, you know, having that, that peaceful um, artistic life, you know, go to Mona every Saturday, spend some time at Salamanca Bay, you know, hang out on, um, on Bruni Island or go up, um, you know, do all those amazing hikes, but um, Cradle Mountain, but, uh, you know, I'm too much of a coward and also, you know, I like uh, big cities and, and good healthcare. <laughs> Oh dear. No, I think you are you are right, Max. Tassie has some beautiful places and beautiful people. And I can tell you my boyfriend had the best apple of his entire life in Tasmania. How curious. What kind of apple was it? What did it taste like? Could he even describe it? It, it tasted like the a, a thousand suns condensed into a single orb. What type of apple? I have no idea. It just came from a random bucket at Salamanca Markets, but I can tell you for sure it was a semi-religious experience. I was going to say, it's as close to uh, <laughs> Eve taking a bite out of the apple as uh, we'll ever get. I think the ship has sailed with um, with us and Adam and Eve, unfortunately. <laughs> or maybe we've redeemed ourselves. He's eaten it and he's, he's put it back somehow. <laughs> I was going to say, Max, you, um, you or your boyfriend, your, the, the description, I think there's a market for um, elaborate labels now on apple packaging if you do buy apples that come in plastic or, you know, on the label price tags, similar vein to, you know, wine, chocolate, you know, notes of cinnamon and hues of mm. lavender. You know do when you go into a bookshop and they have the little um, recommended um, books with the little reviews from staff members? Maybe I could go around Woolworths and just stick a couple of um, extra um, pieces of paper on my various <laughs> apples. <laughs> I can just imagine you with like taking a bite out of it, writing your notes down and putting a post-it note on every uh, <laughs> on every fruit and veg bay. That'd be great. Yeah, 
hints of cranberry in this one and a long lingering finish. May have been contaminated by the cranberries they were housed next to in the freezer, but the taste is there. Yeah, I'll probably have to avoid comparisons with other fruit. (laughs) But anywho, sounds like Tasmania, not only famous for its uh, sunset apples or sunrise apples as you've described, but there are some other famous Tasmanians we we are yet to mention. Ariana Titmus, Hannah Gadsby, Alana Hill, Ricky Ponting, and my favourite, Mary Crown Princess of Denmark. True. Taken home taken home by a prince, the uh, the true Cinderella story of our time. Do you remember where it was? The, I think the it, they were in Sydney. They were in Sydney were and they, they um, oh. were at a, a sports game or something. Are you and sure? Wasn't it in a club in wasn't it in read a club the, in Tasmania? Maybe I read the PC version. All I remember was reading, like, who he was with and it was just, like, royalty. And then uh, she had some kind of tangential relationship with the roommate who knew one of them somehow. Wow, where is she from? Oh, she's just from Hobart. Like, oh, they met at the Slip Inn. Oh, that place is so gross. I forgot about that. <laughs> they, met, they, they met at the Slip Inn during the 2000 Summer Olympics. And, Max, it sounds like you might be uh, familiar with the slip-in. What is the slip-in for people who have not had the pleasure of uh, going there? I mean, imagine the worst pub you've ever been to and then, you know, uh, put a dance floor on it and make it really dark so loud that you can't hear yourself think and um, uh, $4 basic spirits and you've pretty much got a picture of it. $4 basic spirits with a side of royalty by the sounds of it every now and then on happy hour. Exactly. You know, uh, I mean, the Tasmanians that come to mind for me, Jackie Lambie, obviously. Oh, yeah. And and Grace Tame, the Australian of the Year for 2021. Oh, huge. That's some serious Tasmanian uh, famous heavyweights right there. Go Tassie. That's right. Punching up. Punching above their weight in terms of uh, world stage leaders and natural sights and wonders as you described from all the national parks and the beaches that they have there and I hear a fantastic mountain bike track very true plenty of great mountain biking up in Derby especially or Derby oh if there's any Tasmanians listening to this I hope they don't um, mind my pronunciation (laughs) Matt Syker Derby who knows who knows what's going on down there all righty shall we have a listen to Ron let's do it now, Ron was a bit of a character interview. Technically, Ronald Maxwell Felberg. <laughs> Ronald, yeah, I just use Ron. I've never used Maxwell, but I'm known to everybody as Ron. So, except my students, they called me Mad Max. But Ronald Maxwell Felberg, and I'm the Tasmanian State Representative for Lighthouses of Australia Association. I was roped into it. <laughs> because unlike the uh, the previous interviews, he couldn't help himself. I think it almost became a marketing spiel about how great Tassie was and how their lighthouses are the best, of course. So let's have a listen to what Ron has to say about Tasmanian lighthouses. Hi, Ron. How are you going? Uh, good afternoon, Amanda. Can you hear me okay? Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, what a swanky uh, headset you've got there. It's only an El Cheapo one, that's for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well worth it. It sounds great. Yes. 
Good afternoon. I've been out nearly all day trying to solve some drainage problems for a friend. So once you retire, you're always busy. It never ends. (laughs) (laughs) I was brought up on a small farm uh, back in... 1941, (laughs) 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 and probably I had an interest in bushwalking or hiking or trekking or whatever you like to call it in Tasmania. So the 70s and 80s and 90s, I didn't start doing much serious bushwalking until I started teaching at TAFE over a period of time, Frenchman's Cap, South Coast Track, just about anything that in Tasmania that I've that we've walked because uh, we fortunately had time to do it back in those days. Now during these walks I got very interested in surveying. When I went to I photographed of course the low head one as it was but because I wanted the traditional old one I had to dig around. There wasn't too many photographs taken back before the 80s very few and uh, I managed to find a couple and then a friend of mine who lived in Launceston fortunately found a glass plate which they used to use in the olden days for photography and I actually scanned that plate and got a picture of the original lighthouse. While I did that I decided Oh, that's pretty interesting. Maybe I should photograph all the lighthouses in Tasmania (laughs) (laughs) while I'm at it. So that's what I started to do. But that's another story. Anyway, the problem, of course, of photographing all the lighthouses in Tasmania is that half of them are out on remote islands. So how do you get there? Unless you can swim a long way in the Southern Ocean, (laughs) <laughs> or, you, or you've got a boat or something like that that's almost impossible to get to some of these islands so I photographed all the ones that I could get to and then I thought to myself how the heck am I going to get to Tasman, Matt Syker and all these places without paying an arm and a leg so I joined all these groups and fortunately even though I'm 80, I've managed to keep my licences all up. I've got roof licence, I've got mechanical services licence, I've got drainage licence, I've got all the licences there is, and I've managed to do other tickets like working at Heights Ticket and Mm -hmm. all this sort of thing, even though I'm my age. And because I'm qualified, Parks love me because I can go and install things and sign off on them. Otherwise, they would have to pay thousands of dollars for tradespeople to go down to the island Mm. and do the work that I do for nothing. Um, Tasmania is fortunate. We have the oldest operating lighthouse in Australia, which is the Iron Pot in the Derwent. Technically, it's called the Derwent Light because back in the old days. Why is it called the Iron Pot? (laughs) Well, they think that during the whaling days, there used to be a big tripod on there for boiling down blubber. Oh. And they think it's sort of, they're not too sure, but that's why a lot of people called it the iron pot. Name stuck. Uh, there we go. A lot of the, fr- the high-class fraternity in Hobart didn't like it called the iron pot, so they changed its name to the Derwent Light. But it's still known to all yachties and that in Australia as the iron pot. 
I'm one of the official timekeepers for the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. And oh, that fun. is a, a telling point. Two telling points when they're finishing that race is one is they give us a call when they're at Tasman Island because that's where they turn to come up through Storm Bay. And the second one is they always give us a notice when they're passing the Iron Pot. And all the yachties still call it the Iron Pot. But anyway, that's beside the point. With, with Tasmania, so the oldest continuous and light still operating is the Iron Pot, which has been going since 1832. Um, the second oldest one after Macquarie Head was Low Head, which was built in 1833, but that's not the original either. So then we've got Cape Bruni, which was started in 1838. So that was uh, virtually now the second oldest lighthouse in Australia. It was actually the longest manned lighthouse in Australia, Cape Bruni, because it didn't stop till 96. And in Tasmania, we're fortunate that we have the tallest stone tower in the Southern Hemisphere and the tallest lighthouse in Australia, which is Cape Wickham. It's 48 metres. There's none in England that is tall either. We probably have got well, we've got the most southern lighthouse, which is Matt Syker. Uh, we have the most elegant lighthouse in Australia, which is Cape Sorrel. And any, any lighthouse nut will tell you that because it's got the hourglass shape. And probably Ediston is probably uh, fairly unique because it's uh, cut from granite, but it's they used a rough cast cut on the outside. So... Probably we've got some of the more interesting lighthouses in Australia, really. But it depends on where you are, of course. Everyone will tell you that. But um, With Matt Syker, this is where we got it over everybody else. <laughs> Sounds like Tassie uh, has the claim as the, you know, the state with the best well, lighthouses to visit. First of all, interstate competition. A, a guy called Abel Jansoon Tasman, who came from the Dutch East Indies, which was then called Batavia, which is now called Jakarta. Well, he, he first sailed down from the Dutch East Indies to Mauritius. Anyway, Frederick Henry Bay, but Frederick Henry Bay, which we call one of our bays, in Mauritius, the port is called Frederick Henry, Port Frederick Henry. When he sailed across, he was told by his council in Batavia, and the governor there was then, of course, Anthony Van Diemen, who was the governor, uh, they wanted to go to 55 degrees south. He tried to get to 55 degrees south, but found the weather was so bad, the ship was breaking up, they were breaking sails, masts, and all sorts of different things that he decided to abandon that and didn't do what he was told and went up to the 40th parallel. And, of course, they spent days and days and days at sea, and then all of a sudden on... Uh, I think it's the 24th of November, 1642, he hit the west coast of Tasmania. And we've got a town around there called Zeehan. And we've got a mountain called Mount Zeehan. And we have another mountain called Mount Heemskirk. And that was the name of his two ships. <laughs> uh, they didn't like the coast of Tasmania very much. But as he went, sailed down the coast, because he was actually following around, he came around and he named Matsyker Island and the DeWitt Islands, Mariah Island, Shooton Island, uh, Boreal Head, quite a few places 
and they were all named in 1642, long before bloody Captain Cook and was and uh, people like Bly, William Bly and Furno, and they were even heard of. I have great pleasure when I go to Queensland. I say, oh, Captain Cook found this place in 1770. Big deal. Tasmania, we're back in 1642, you know. <laughs> so that really gets up their nose. Now, Matt Syker was one of the councillors on the Dutch East Indies Council. So what they tried to do, as they went around these places, they tried to name the different places after the different councillors. And Mariah oh, Wow, Island, so in some political flavour, say, you know, we've yeah. come back, you've got an island in And it was name. Dutch, yeah. And uh, Mariah Island was named after Mariah was uh, the wife of Anthony Van Diemen. So, and they argued as what they were going to call this place because they didn't know whether it was connected to New Holland or not because they didn't know about Bass Strait or yeah. anything then. So they thought, oh, it may be. So they called it Van Diemen's Land. And uh, it was called Van Diemen's Land. You don't know for how long, do you? No, I don't. Tell, <laughs> when me, was it named, Tell me. When was it named? Well, on the 1st of January, 1856, they decided to name the place Tasmania after Tasman. Because we we're run by English. So we had the Portuguese oh, here. Too, yeah. We had the Dutch here. Then we had the French. And, of course, Cape Bruni is named after Bruni Dontracasto. We've got lots of names that are named after Dutch. We've got lots of mm. names that are named after French, mm. like Freshnay, so half of our thing. And then a lot of the English come along and they wanted to change the names to some places. Well, some places they did, some places they didn't. Hobart was settled in 1803, but Hobart, itself that was at Risdon Cove wasn't actually settled till 1804 and Hobart became the second major port after Sydney because we were the next oh, wow. old and the re yeah yeah so Sydney was first Hobart was second long before Melbourne was even thought of and the others and why that was so prominent was because of the convicts and the convict settlement so the English were sending all these convicts out and so we were a major port. We had hundreds of ships coming in here. And because of that reason, particularly when they found the Dontracasto Channel, all the ships that came from England came down the west coast of Africa, along the Cape of Good Hope, along the Southern Ocean. And when they got to Tasmania, they found it more sheltered to come up the Dontracasto Channel rather than go around to Storm Bay. Now, in the 90s, when the last couple of lighthouses were decommissioned in Tasmania. I mean, Matt Syke was 96, and I think Bruni was somewhere around the same time. They were decommissioned. When AMSA got, didn't want the lighthouses anymore, they handed them all back to the Tasmanian government for a dollar. So all, all, the, yeah, all the precincts and all the lighthouses were given back to the Tasmanian government. Now, the problem is... The government had no money or anything to maintain anything. So they had all these lighthouses and all these precincts. What happened with AMSA, they actually lease the ones that are being used back again. So Tasmanian government, Parks and Wildlife, own all the lighthouses and the ones that are still operating, which are all automatic, are just leased back to AMSA. And all they're responsible for is the light. Some of them started, uh, like Matt Syker's got three houses, Tasman's got three houses, there's two houses on Deal Island, 
there's a couple of houses on Swan Island, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. With places like Matt Syker, it was a little bit different. Uh, they amps are actually paid for a few years until the, I think 2002, and then they ask for expressions of interest through parks for people to go down there and be caretakers. In the meantime, a few people got together and said, well, we don't want to see these houses go to rack and ruin. Um, and they started up volunteer groups. So, um, and you got like friends of Deal Island, friends of Matt Syker Island, friends of Tasman Island. We tried to start one for Cape Bruni, but the uh, head ranger down there was against it. So that sort of didn't happen. Although we still have caretakers there all the time. What What is the relationship between, you know, I understand you mentioned earlier that um, parks have kind of leased back the, the lights to AMSA, yep. but actually they yes. own the lighthouses and the yes. precincts. Yes, um, that's right. It sounds like though a lot of the work has fallen to you as volunteers, volunteers. because there is no and, money. And we've, raised, and we've raised money as well to actually, well, with Matt Syker, we've spent probably... $150,000 on the lighthouse. How do you raise um, money? Is it just through donations? Well, friends, we shame parks into some of it. Um, when I first went down there in 2013, I actually did a, a little doco on restoration of the Matt Cycler Island Lighthouse because I've been there since it was in its worst condition till it's been Rest, restored mm -hmm. to its best condition. So I was able to take photographs all the way through, which I've been fortunate because I'm mm. probably the only person that's had access to it all this time because I've been on every working bee virtually. And uh, back in 2013 and 14 and that, there was uh, lots of grants around for like caring for your country grants, heritage grants. And because we've got so many high-flying people in the Friends of Matt Syker Island, like we've got university professors and all sorts of different people who are very good at writing applications for grants. So we were lucky and we had a lot of bequests. We've had people that have given us $1,000 at a time. There is a group in Tasmania attached to parks which is called Wild Care. Uh, people pay $25 a year to be a member of Wild Care, and you have to be a member of Wild Care to actually go on any of these trips uh, if you're a friend. Oh, the working bees. Yep. Yeah, any working bees, you have to be a member of Wild Care because they cover us with insurance and that. For, so so we're under How their umbrella. How often are the working bees? Well, on Matt Syker, they have two a year. Tasman, they have two a year. Um, at the moment, Deal Island's down to about one a year. Uh, depends on the, the helicopters are our biggest expense. One year we spent twenty six thousand dollars just on helicopters to get oh. there and back, which is very expensive. So Not including all got, the food and all the resources you actually no, need. No, well we supply all our own food and stuff, so I mean that comes out of our pocket. So uh, it's a bit different. They all work it differently. Tasman, everybody pays one hundred and twenty dollars for the ten days, and Glenda buys all the food, supplies it, and she does the menus and cooks it all. She's not here at the moment. She nicked off because she doesn't like me talking all the time. <laughs> it's all right. Well, now she we've got a recording of it, she, so we can just keep playing She reckons over over. once I start, I don't know when to stop. But 
with with the uh, or just roughly what happened with the lighthouse, we actually saved up forty thousand dollars, and we went to Parks and said, "Look, we've saved up forty thousand dollars. We want to spend this on some of the restoration of the lighthouse." And so we actually shamed them into it, and they donated another forty thousand. So we had eighty thousand. Then I approached a couple of guys in New South Wales. Uh, Mark Sheriff, who's well known around lighthouse circles, he's known all over Australia. Everybody knows him. He used to be a lighthouse keeper on Sugarloaf Point um, in New South Wales, and he's he works for AMS, so he works on lighthouses all around Australia. And he was quite willing to come down and help us restore the lighthouse. So that started it all off, and then over a period of time. Mark and his mate come back twice has, on a working bee and did it for nothing, worked on it for nothing. But Parks did supply all the paint and the gear and stuff. So we've got Matt Syker now to a, a really good position. They've mm. also done Cape Bruni Lighthouse Up and they've also done Deal Island Lighthouse Up. Yeah. I understand Matt Syker's in on the lighthouses on quite uh, remote and hard to get it's, to island. It is. You have to fly by helicopter and it costs several thousand dollars. Uh, I've been there 15 times. It hasn't cost me a cent. But <laughs> but we go, no, our working bees, we, we, we have 10 people. So five fit in one chopper and five fit in another one. And that way it makes it more economical. But it's an hour's flight from Hobart. What we do there is the first flight goes from Hobart and then the second one goes from a place called Cockle Creek which you probably don't know where it is, but it's at the end of the road in Tasmania, as far as you can drive in Tassie. And then it's only a 20-minute flight from there to Matsyker Island. So all our gear and stuff we take down there and they sling load it across. They put it in a big net, pick it up. Oh, wow. And I, for the last, well, virtually nine years, I've organised all the timber and stuff that goes there to do the floors. I've replaced nearly all the floors in the houses, me and a couple of other guys. Yeah. After my first trip there, they put me, they asked me would I be in charge of the building maintenance. So I sort of looked after every time we went down there on a working bee, I'd have a couple of pre-meetings and say, well, we're going to do floor do the floor in this house or put some vents in or do that. So we'd write up a list of what we're going to do and then we'd achieve it. The only problem is that I had is the building side of it was the least. Uh, the eight people that go, usually six of them go as weeders, Monbrecia, um, Blackberry and Hebe. There's three basic weeds there. Now, over the period of time, they've actually just about got rid of them all. So when they go out on a weeding thing now, they've even gone two and three days and haven't found one. But it's very dense scrub, very heavy. And they have to use what they call string lines. Mm. And they virtually walk down the hill, almost touching each other with their hands. Wow, just looking, in case. Looking for invasive weeds. Now, two ladies usually go to count birds. They have... Uh, a population of 800,000 mm -hmm. um, shearwaters, short-tailed shearwaters. Mm -hmm. um, so what they do is they have sort of like about a 10 square metre space, which mm -hmm. they Are there have any a, other animals around the lighthouse? No, the there's lighthouse? no, there's no animals 
at all on Matsyker Island. There's no snakes. Uh, there's a there's a little marsupial mouse called an anticlinus, and that's the only animal there is. There's lots of birds, but there's there's nothing else. And outside of the working bees, are there caretakers who you know stay on the island? Yes, they stay For there what, six permanently. months at a time, or permanently yeah, on Matsyker. Yeah, well, six months. Used to be three months. Then it went to four months, and then Parks reckon they couldn't afford to keep flying people in, so it went to six months. But they still have a resupply in the middle of that, which means they fly in goods and that in the meantime. You spent some time as a caretaker at Cape Bruni. So yes. I understand you did lots of volunteer stints, you know, pulling out yes. the sea spurge. But did you, were you one of those caretakers who ended up at Cape Bruni for a uh, couple Cape, of months? Cape Bruni. We started there in 2012, and normally you had a one-month or a two-month stint. Sometimes we had six weeks, sometimes we had five weeks, sometimes we had one month, sometimes we had two months. Now, ours varied a bit because most of the caretakers that go to Cape Bruni come from the mainland. Um, they put in an expression of interest. Uh, there's uh, a woman who coordinates it in national parks and wildlife, and she writes down the likes one month somebody from Sydney could be there. In fact, we've had people from America. We had two or three couples from America that had actually done stints there, so it's from all over the world. Glenda and I's position was that because we live in Hobart, sometimes one of these people would ring up and say, sorry, we can't get there. So they'd ring us and say, can you fill in? So we'd race down and fill in. Now, when we first started down there, um, once again, we had total access to the lighthouse because they do have visitors there now. But back when we started, they didn't. So we had to actually look after the lighthouse as well. I know a lot of people that I've spoken to are quite interested mm. in the lifestyle of a caretaker. And it sounds like it's quite an involved... Well, you can still do it. You can, you yep. can uh, if you go onto the park's website now go on to wild care, you can actually still put in expressions of interest to be a caretaker. Now, what are they got, looking for? What's what's the secret, you know, the secret recipe for being Oh, well, a you, you have to be, take your own food, look after yourself. They do give you some training as to, I mean, at the moment, PPE and that is a big thing. You know, when you wash the toilets, they want you to wear gloves and masks and blah, blah, and all this sort of thing. But you don't need to be a plumber for a caretaker role, for example. Or a no, you don't have to be a plumber. No, most of them are office workers. You don't. Oh have wow! To be a but they have to operate the generator. They have to know how to take. Yes, weather yeah. Well, that they do. Uh, with Matt Syker on, they have a four-day changeover. So the new caretakers come in. The old caretakers tell them what's going on. Parks send in a couple of rangers and the rangers go through, they have to go through like brush cutting, lawn mowing. Uh, you also have to check the generator and all that down there on Matt Syker Island. You've got to actually run the run the light, even though it's not being used, we actually run it. Um, and you've got to have a, a radio licence because it's remote. You, you talk to uh, maritime services every day like shipping thing and all that sort of thing so there's a whole there's a whole host of things basically you do what you want to do my wife gets annoyed when i start talking because 
they often ask me to get up and have a speech at sometimes and they say, oh, you've got 10 minutes and uh, they have of to, course, that's to sit, never enough. sit down yeah. in the end. No, it's never enough. No, yes. it's been great. So I hope you sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, dear, dreams of that love triangle and murders and uh, oh, the life on yeah. these desolate islands and their blue kerosene. Yeah. Yeah, you think right. of any more phrases, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, they, had, they had something for the uh, a different beer with the green stuff, and I can't think what it was now. Yeah. Whether it was oil or something. They'd, yeah, they'd okay. have all these, you know. <laughs> oh, that was a great lot of things went on. Yeah, okay, then, no, Amanda. Yeah. Lovely, Ron. I'll, I'll go, I'll go and have you. afternoon tea now. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks oh, very much. Okay. See you, Ron. Bye. Oh. So what I do, just leave, do I? Oh, yep. I'll, I'll end it. Okay. It'll be fine. Thanks, okay, John. okay. Bye. Bye. All the best. Mandy, i got to say, I mean, people are going to think we're being paid by Tasmanian tourism for this episode, but truly, I think after this episode, I'm, I think I'm in as a lighthouse keeper in Tasmania. It sounds like an idyllic place not only to be a lighthouse keeper, but just the views, the life. I think secretly a lot of people wish they could live the Tassie dream down deep, 100%. deep, deep down. We're all yeah. like, yeah, I wouldn't mind some of that fresh coastal forest chill life. Yes. As I said, every left-leaning upper middle-class person in Australia has probably dreamt of moving to Tasmania at some point. <laughs> Bruni Island is one of the few lighthouses that you've um, got on your podcast that I've actually been to. It's a beautiful lighthouse. Um on uh, what's a stunning island with all this amazing produce and um, there's a great whiskey distillery on the island. Uh, They catch so much salmon off the coast. If you've ever eaten tassel salmon, a lot of that is caught off the coast there. So I can imagine myself spending, you know, four weeks getting a little uh, crash course in how to run a generator and um, fix the plumbing and then um, off I go. Are you sure you're not being paid by uh, the Tassie marketing team, Max? Because that sounds like a great uh, landscape for a uh, Tassie ad. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going to agree to being a um, official like, uh, sorry, an official timekeeper of the Sydney to Hobart yacht race like he is, unfortunately. <laughs> Seems like but a no. pretty boring job starting a stopwatch and then two days later stopping it. <laughs> Dedication to the cause, Max. You know, these light keepers were on there for years and years and years tending a light. Two days turning a stopwatch on and off is probably nothing. That's a great point. <laughs> but no, you're right. Tassie is a beautiful place in the world. I think it's probably one of our, our lesser-known crown jewels that we have rolling around Australia. You know, everyone knows about the Gold Coast, Byron Bay. But Tassie? Put on your next hit list, everybody, for a holiday. I mean, they're already doing, as we've mentioned, a pretty good marketing spiel at the moment. Uh, <laughs> breath of fresh air. Come to the mountains. Yeah. Go for a nudie swim. Uh, two of us are convinced, at least. But neither of us are paid. <laughs> well, if Tasmania does want to um, to fund a trip for us, I would be more than happy to record another 12 episodes about Tasmania. I'm in. Let's go. Thank you firstly to Ron Felberg for his enthusiasm, curiosity and marketing for Tassie. Thanks, of course, to my co-host Max, for whom I've run out of compliments. Up next, we conclude this extreme part with Shipwreck Coast in Victoria. Until then, 
stick around to listen to more from Ron Felberg and Jess Clifford and the Carrier Pigeons. Thank you for listening. One of the hassles was a lot of them were virtually alcoholics. And that oh, was wow. a, com- a common theme among lighthouse keepers. Yeah, because they were so isolated or just dealing with... Yes, basically. And of course, technically, they weren't supposed to drink at all. It was barred, but they used to How did they get, get away it? with it. Well, that's a good story. Naked into the supplies. Sh- there's a book you should read <laughs> about all this. And when they sent for their supplies, they'd put down like blue kerosene, such and such. And that meant, you know, blue cans of beer and all this sort of thing. So they had all these codes worked out. Oh, so really? When they sent, yeah, when they sent in for supplies. So when the official lighthouse peepers looked at this, they couldn't see any beer on there at all, but it was all in code. And that's how they used to get their grog across. Blue kerosene. I'm going to definitely use and that one. Are there any thing. other phrases? Are there any other? <laughs> oh, there is. I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to remember the the book. You've mentioned Matt Syker a couple of times. It sounds like a really interesting lighthouse, particularly because it's one of those ones that you can potentially go and be a caretaker of, or at least be part of the Friends of Matt Syker group. I also understand it was like the last lighthouse to be actually operated by lighthouse keepers. You know, what do you know about Matt Syker? Yeah, well, Matt Syker, um, <laughs> I guess for me, it's most interesting because it's the most southern lighthouse in Australia. Um, it's an incredibly um, remote and harsh environment, but um, I don't sort of know a lot about the the light keeping that goes on out there, but I do know that, you know, getting it built was an incredible um, effort. I know that, um, you know, this is where I've heard stories of uh, poultry and, and um cattle and things being blown off the the side of cliffs because it's so incredibly windy. And I know that, you know, um, even when they were building it, there was so much to get done because they had to build it before the start of winter. And uh, as I said, you know, a lot of the time this, this island is actually completely inaccessible. So, you know, I think the beauty of it, the remote location of it, um, you know, that is what makes this a really interesting lighthouse and, of course, the stunning location as well. Um, but, yeah, that's I don't, I don't sort of know a lot about keeping it, sorry, because it's sort of quite far away from me. But I know you can go out there and it's beautiful. Yeah, and they used to have carrier pigeons. <laughs> and they Sounds used like to have carrier pigeons. Yeah, they used to have carrier pigeons because... Um, you know, back at that time, um, I think Matt Syker was built in, I actually have the date here, that Matt Syker was lit in 1891. So this is the time well before most radio operations. And um, they imported a bunch of carrier pigeons, I think from Holland. And that was, it, it took a while to kind of get it working. And sometimes they were unreliable. I did hear a story about one that turned up in Launceston instead of Hobart a few months after it should have. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's how they got their messages uh, across to the mainland. And I know there was uh, a keeper who, you know, fell quite gravely ill, send a carrier pigeon. The pigeon got there within three hours and they were able to send help for him. So, yeah, it was just a really interesting 
uh, kind of scenario. And unique, I think. I think you'd have to say it was one of the most difficult to access lighthouses. So I think in terms of, you know, we talk about the extreme lives of the people that kept them, I think this would probably be among the most extreme that I've heard. Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been a long time listener. I really love your work.